Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Walter. Tell me again. Why we're starting this fire at this ungodly hour of the morning. Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Twice a year, Restoration Carpenter Tom Linsky and his wife Sally Irons host in their historic 18th century home in Portland a benefit dinner, or should I say a feast, for their favorite charities in which every item served is an authentic colonial period dish cooked, baked, or otherwise prepared by Chef Tom Linsky using 18th century tools and hearth cooking techniques. It's a labor of love of both food and history for Tom, and each meal takes most of a week to prepare. Last month, I stopped in to see Tom throughout the week to find out more about these ancient cooking techniques. It was a delicious lesson in historic food ways, and with so many of us spending much more time around the house these days, it's an episode that is both timely and tasty. My first visit happened early, and I do mean early, on a Tuesday morning. Tell me again. Why we're starting this fire at this ungodly hour of the morning. Because we're using Dutch ovens to bake bread and rolls, and they require a large quantity of coals. And the fire starts early, so you can generate a bed of coals. It'll take probably a good six or seven hours of a good steady fire to generate enough that I can start one of the Dutch ovens. So we'll be here this evening. What I'm looking at is a stone fireplace with sticks of wood about a foot long and a half inch thick. Mm -hmm. They started beautifully, but how are you going to turn these sticks into coals? That's just the starter. They'll, they'll burn down. Um, we'll start feeding the, um, the hardwood logs, and, um, and, and as they're consumed, they'll, they'll fall into uh, embers, and they'll maintain their heat for quite some time, and that's when you capture them and Outside of the firebox on the hearth, we, you make a pile, you set the Dutch oven on the pile, and then you also cover the lid of the Dutch oven with another pile. So it's, it's heating from below and above, just like a modern oven does. So the idea is that you use these embers, yeah. and they become the heat source from the bottom and the heat source from the top. Yes. Now, do they burn consistently, meaning that will they stay hot the same amount of time, or do you just keep replacing them as they burn down? For the amount of time it takes to do one, one batch of bread or rolls, they'll generate enough heat for, for that. If you're going to do a second batch, then you need to refresh the pile of coals um, with, with some um, another shovel full or two of, uh, of fresh embers. You're using these Dutch ovens, actually, as baking pans. Yeah, they're incredibly versatile. Anything you can fit in them will bake. If, if you use the right technique, they'll do the job. You know, bread, rolls, I can do, you know, pastries, cookies if I wanted to. Now, does this work the way a regular oven does in terms of time, or does it take longer when you're using embers? It's all feel and just, just practice. It's probably a little quicker. The iron has to be preheated. Being cast iron, it, it slowly absorbs heat. So you, you put them near the fire and get it 
quite warm before you ever put the food in it. When I'm baking something in the oven or my wife is baking something in the oven and you want to know how it's doing, you go and you look in the window. But in a Dutch oven, that lid is closed and you got embers on top of it. So how do you know? Well, you lift the top off. You try to, to minimize that because you've got this big pile of, of ash on top of the oven. You can easily burn things. I know roughly how much time it takes to do, so I'll, I'll, I'll watch it closely. But if I'm concerned, or sometimes there's variables in the intensity of the heat, pick it up and take a peek. But you have to balance it and put it back very slowly because if, if you tip it and the ashes fall into the, into the rolls, that's not such a good thing. You, you'll tend to get a little blackening on the very top, but um, that's not a bad thing. In minutes, the fire is off to a roaring start, though Tom has to revisit it every once in a while to add more of the logs that will become the oven embers. While he's doing that, he starts to mix up one of the several hearth-cooked baking creations he'll be serving on Saturday. While the fire is burning down and we're starting to get the first of the coals, you've started mixing up some dough, it looks like. Tell us what you're making. Anadama bread. It's an old Yankee molasses bread recipe. Been around for generations, and it's, uh, it's a very sweet, light brown bread, and it's wonderful. And it, it lends itself beautifully to the Dutch oven. It comes out with a nice crust on top. And what are the ingredients in it? Uh, flour, cornmeal, molasses. It was sort of a, um, a cobbling together of whatever was available. It was kind of by accident. And the story is that the fisherman whose wife, uh, Anna, prepared nothing for him but a bowl of cornmeal molasses. And he didn't like it. And one day he threw some yeast in. And lo and behold, he got this brown bread. His decree is, you know, damn you, Anna. And that's, <laughs> so it became Anna Dama. And, and that's, that's, that's the story. So, <laughs> Hearth baking homemade bread in a Dutch oven, I soon learned, is a time-consuming endeavor. Now, you've started putting together this anadama bread. Mm -hmm. How long is the process of getting it ready for baking? It's, it's lengthy. It takes a few minutes to mix up the dough, and then it has to, to rise. So you cover that ball of dough with butter. You know, I, I cover it, put it on the hearth next to the fire, and let it rise. And in a, in a couple hours, you sometimes a little more, you punch it down, and then you break it in half, and it has to rise for another um, hour or so. At that point, you put it in the pans and sprinkle it with, with more cornmeal, and you're ready to to bake it. The recipe makes two small loaf pans and uh, they never consume it. I usually have one loaf left over because there's, there's so much other food that goes along with this. I'm yeah. trying to give them a sampling of, of a lot of different things. Hearth baking bread doesn't just take time, it takes effort. Ooh. So you're putting some flour out on this granite countertop. Uh, soapstone. My assumption is you're going to roll out or press the dough now. I'm just going to knead it. I, I know everyone who makes bread needs the dough the way you're doing it or some way, but what's the purpose of kneading dough? What does it do? It it works all the ingredients together, and, and I'm not a professional baker, but as I understand it, it, it works all together. It starts things working on each other, um, and I suppose it, it uh, maybe gives the yeast a little head start, but it, like anything, if you... You keep doing this, it, it smooths it out. And the goal with this particular, like I suppose any bread is, is you want it, um, the grittiness out, you want it thoroughly mixed and smooth and kind of elastic. And that just takes some, some working. So what you do is take the ball of dough and you press on it with the heel of both hands. Yep. One hand on top of the other. Yep. 
and that flattens it out, and then you roll it over itself, and you do it again, and you're just doing this over and over and over. Yes, sir. See, that's pretty good. You're putting some effort into this. Oh, this yeah. is not easy work. No, it takes a little. Yep, it does. So for the colonial cook, they probably had some pretty good muscles. Well, I can't imagine anybody in the 18th century in this neck of the woods that wasn't fairly strong because everything's manual. Yeah. Especially the guys. I mean, well, women too. They're they're hauling buckets full of water for laundry and, and firewood. And it's a manual society. It really is. So now how often would a colonial housewife do baking? Because obviously this is a major undertaking. Well, if you if you read books like uh, Ann Nylander, my own snug fireside, I think is the name of it. It's a whole collection of excerpts from daily life and kind of the routine of, of a New England house. There was a certain day of the week to do bread. Um, there was a certain day of the week to do laundry. I mean, that seems to be the way it happened. In between, they would be doing their other necessary things. Everybody had their specialty. Some some people were weavers, and they would they have a, a loom set up in the house, could do that for their own needs and, and possibly for, for sale. And I'm sure it was as, as diverse as the, the people who lived there, but, but there were some consistencies, and it seems to be that they had certain days of the week for certain things. And, you know, laundry, it happens winter and summer, so uh, it's, it's a lot more of a task in the middle of winter, but it still happened. As the coals get piled up for use in the Dutch ovens and the Anadama bread rises on the counter, Tom takes a few minutes to prepare one of the ingredients for another of the dinner's dishes. I'm making bacon. Kind of a, kind of a thick-cut bacon, a little closer to the old style. And just a bed of coals in a, in a three-legged skillet. And what I'm doing is just cooking it up, and when it's done, We'll grate it and cut it up into little pieces and put it aside. And then Saturday night, Jack, I will have saved a good part of the bacon fat and we'll reintroduce the, have a warm frying pan and reintroduce the already cooked uh, bacon with some bacon grease and we'll throw in some peas and cook up the peas and mix it all together. And it makes a wonderful, delicious, although probably not at all healthy, um, peas and bacon. Oh, it sounds great. So who is this man who's as competent on the hearth as today's cooks are at their stoves and microwaves? I asked Tom Linsky to talk about the ingredients that went into making Tom Linsky himself. So you're from Guilford, right? Yes, sir. But you, your love of history came early, and it's influenced everything from your occupation to your avocation to your hearth cooking. So yeah, I what, suppose, yeah. what do you do for a living? I'm a restoration carpenter. I um, restore, repair, um, uh, replicate 18th, in some cases, 17th century buildings, but uh, more often than not, it's, it's 18th or the first two years of the 19th century. And it's what I've done for oh, a long time now. And how did you learn how to do that? Well, <laughs> My dad is a carpenter, a retired carpenter, um, so I was around construction growing up. Something must have stuck, and I, I look back at about age, I think about eight. I just loved the architecture of Guilford. My favorite was always a gambrel, and in the 60s, in the town I grew up in, they were pretty active in preservation already. They, As gas stations were being built on corners where old homes used to be, um, um, many towns would knock them down, and, and that did happen, but. 
they started pretty early moving them. And those were big events. When a house was moved, um, you'd go uptown and with, with grandparents and, and watch the procession, the, the power lines coming down and, and the house you know, slowly going by. And something happened and, I, and that stuck with me. It started by purchasing my own 18th century houses, inevitably wrecks and fixing them up. And, and that is strictly done by taking things apart and uh, reverse engineering is figure out how it was put together and then figure out how to reproduce that. And it just took off and, and I never looked back. So. What are some of the houses that people might have visited that you've done work on? Uh, I worked for, well, quite a bit of work in Lebanon, the Governor Trumbull Jr. House, a little bit on the senior house. I worked a long time ago for the Haddam Historical Society a little bit. Uh, Vernon did some work for the, uh, a couple houses in Vernon people own. I'm currently going to be working this spring on both the Buttoff Williams House in Wethersfield and the Hempstead House in New London. Well, it's hard to remember. You got to love it. You got to have some kind of innate feeling that connects you to the past. There, quite frankly, there's nothing romantic about it. It's for the most part, it's laborious, it's dirty, um, it's hard, um, it's challenging when finding the right materials. Uh, it gets harder every year. I like to think of it as. Yes, I work for the customer, and we have to have a, a great deal of trust in each other. But I'm also, for better or worse, I'm working for the house, always thinking that I would like to do this in a way that no one will have to do this for a long time, and the next owners will appreciate it. I mean, it's about preserving the house, and, and that comes from the thought that when you travel to Europe, everyone loves to see the old architecture of places in, in, in particular Europe. And in America, these houses are, that's our version of that. It's as close as we'll get. We don't have the, you know, six or seven or eight centuries of, of that sort of thing. This this is it for us. And that, that New England character um, that, that people love, it could easily disappear. Historic house restoration as a carpenter, that's, that's how you make your living. But your hobby also involves his, well, you have many hobbies, I yeah, would assume, does, but, <laughs> but one of your hobbies is reenacting. You are a Revolutionary War reenactor. I've been a member of the 5th Connecticut Regiment, or the 5th Connecticut of the Continental Line, uh, Colonel Bradley's Regiment, which was formed in the Ridgefield area um, in 1778 and was recreated or, or reestablished, I guess, um, back in 62 or so, something like that. Um, I've been doing it for, it's getting close to 30 years. Um, we have traveled up and down the East Coast from Quebec to, to Georgia. Uh, and I still love it. I don't do quite as much as I used to, but you know, we've been to some great places for great events, and uh, both big and small. And it's, um, it's still a love. It's, a, it's dear friends for many years. It's people that share a common interest. And um, I'm really a... Um, even more strongly interested in the maritime aspect of, of Connecticut history and being in Portland, a shipbuilding town. Um, used to do a school program based on that, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it, as you know, Walter, it's, <laughs> history gets under your skin and either you like it or you don't, and it, it just happened. Uh, it, I didn't, no one beat it into me. It was, it must have been just there, and, you know, thankfully you have the opportunity to explore it on your own. When you are reenacting, when you're out there, you know, and you're there with the other troops and there are there are loyalists and Tories on the other side and you're shooting at each other. Did, does that wall between the present and the past disappear for you? Not very often, but every once in a while in the right location, um, like in particular at uh, Monmouth Battlefield one time, it was a large event and there were German forces um, 
I don't remember if they were Brunswick or Hess Castle or who they, who they were, but the briefing in the morning was that we were going on a patrol and we're out in, on, on dirt roads and in cornfields and be aware that the, that the Germans were in the area. And on a, on a beautiful summer day is, is uh, in a small group marching down this, this dirt road and in the distance, um, as we were forewarned of, we could hear German voices. And it's moments like that where it just kind of hits you. Um, a couple of times when you're in the, in the line of battle, when muskets are leveled and it's a big event, and it would from time to time it would hit like, this is nuts. If, what, what would I really feel like if this was real? There's going to, about to be a wall of lead coming at my face. And it gives me an instant um, great respect for the people that did it for real. And that's... Do you feel fear? It, a little bit. A little bit. It, it's, it's an apprehension that, that, God, people really did this. And then you see the results of uh, people. I know what the result would be when, when the wall of lead hits flesh and bone. It's god-awful. Um, so it's, it's all tempered with that sort of, this is fun, but there was a reality. Some people don't care about that, but f for me, I try and be as accurate as possible as a way of honoring the people that did it for real. Clearly, Tom is a man who likes to experience the past as close to the way it really was as possible. I asked him about the authenticity of the dishes he was preparing. So where'd you get this big redware bowl? It's beautiful. I believe that's a West Virginia purchase. In the, in the work I do, I've, I'm always coming across redware shards of pottery, and they're from vessels just like this. You use it in the kitchen, you break it, out the back door it goes. So <laughs> how much of the hearth cooking that you do, how hard do you strive to be authentic, to actually do it the way they did it? Well, to be truly authentic, uh, in front of your large fireplace, you would need a large work table, and you're preparing everything right here in the kitchen. That's a little awkward. I, I don't live in a museum. I have all the components, but just not in the complete setting. This particular event is all about the final presentation of Hearth Meal, and that room is, is pretty true to character. But I, that room with a large fireplace, I keep it as my tavern room. So therefore, the preparation is limited to my, my kitchen, which is a, an early 19th century attachment to the back of the house. It's still an old fireplace, but it is my modern kitchen, so I can't entirely give it up to old ways of preparation. But it's a working kitchen. so It's you a working kitchen. I have a hearth, and, and I do it all here. It's just that I do use the sink, a few modern appliances. Well, I suspect at the end of the day, no one regrets that you can wash no. your hands more. <laughs> no, that's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. Like I said, I, I would love to have my tavern table back here as a prep table and doing it all right here, but that's just not going to happen. You, sure. You could do it at a museum, and, they, and people do do it. Still, Tom has gathered an array of authentic recipes from a variety of sources to put together a colonial feast that's both a major event and a journey through colonial culture. It's a major undertaking because I know you started oh, shopping for this a couple days ago. It is. And you will keep going right up until the dinner on Saturday. So it's a whole week long of prep, right? Start, start backwards. Start with desserts. And it's, it's, um, it's a pretty diverse menu. It gives people a good taste of, of both some New England fare, some Virginia. Um, it tends to be a little more of a overall, an, it would be considered a, an upper middle class kind of meal. This, this is not your, your average farmer's meal. But that wouldn't be that much fun to prepare. Um, so this gives people a, a slice of uh, kind of through the culture. So I left Tom on Tuesday afternoon busily baking breads and desserts. When I came back a couple of days later, 
I was curious to learn more about the cooking techniques I'd seen on my last visit. The desserts were done on Tuesday. The baking was done on Wednesday. Now, here we are at Thursday. So before I got here, you and your assistant were really busy. What did you do? Well, we cranked up the fire again, and we pre-cooked the bacon. We chopped up the vegetables for the soup, uh, put them aside, cooked the chicken ahead of time, boil it up. So we're putting the pieces together to uh, to make the assembly, the presentation on Saturday, something we can handle. Because the difficulty in, in all this really is when it all comes together just prior to the guests coming on Saturday evening. The thing about this dinner is that it is a hearth-cooked dinner, and both the difference in cooking techniques and preparation and the time spent it's, it, in it getting is it by nature labor intensive. Um, you're not using an electric stove. You're not. Uh, you have to tend the fire. You have to bring in the wood, manually adjust the heat. It's it's just a slower process, which which really is its charm and it's the aspect of, of a wood fire and iron. It, it does have a great effect on the food. That's really its it, its charm and, and, um, and elegance. When I walked in, I was assaulted by these wonderful smells. And when I came into the kitchen where you're working on the hearth, warm, warm, warm. There's a lot of heat coming yeah. off of that fire. When, when we do these meals, I always pray for a cold winter day because it can get pretty hot in there. As a matter of fact, I've got a little, little burn on my right arm from the intense fire yesterday. Um, shoveling coals to uh, to feed the um, the Dutch ovens. You need a roaring fire to generate the coals. That was really interesting to me. When you bake the bread, you literally take the dough and you put it in the oven and then you put it on top of a bed of coals and then put a bed of coals on top of it. That's why they call it an oven. Um, the, the top of the Dutch oven has a lip on it to to retain the coals so they won't slide off. And it's, it's the same principle as any electric oven. Um, it heats from above and below. Um, and you also have to um, have it raised off the bottom of the um, of the iron, otherwise it'll burn, much like the rack um, in an oven. So it's the same concept, it's just a different source of heat. I can't help but think that regulating the temperature and figuring out how long things have to stay in the oven, it, it's not like my Betty Crocker recipe. Every every fireplace, um, every iron device is, is a little different, and after you do it enough, and and there's no way to get around the fact that you learn by failing. You just cannot get around that. Um, and I did. This is, I guess, probably somewhere around 25 years I've been doing this. There was no school for it. That's the challenge of it, and it's fun. And, and that's why people don't do it. Number one, not, not everyone has a large fireplace, but just because of the time and effort involved. So you've taken something that was, um, at one point, the only way to prepare food that was a day-to-day task, and, and now it's become you know, sort of a... Um, a luxury in a way um, to be able to do that. So So when I followed my nose to the wonderful smells, when I got to the hearth, I mean, it really looked like an old-fashioned early American hearth. There's the bar coming out from the wall and there it's a hook that you hang a pot on. There was a big cast iron pot hanging on the hook and uh, steam coming off of the pot. Is that really how you would boil and cook things? Absolutely. There's no different. I'm using the same, in, in many cases, they're actually antiques, um, the same crane. That's that's the crane that has been in this house, in that particular fireplace, um, since about 1815. So how long does it take you to get the water to boil? And If you put it over over a, you know, a pretty good fire, um, that's a couple gallon kettle. It took 25 minutes, maybe, not much. And it's just boiling in there and we threw the chicken in and it doesn't take long at all. Well, it sure smells good. <laughs> It's all about being able to, to regulate the temperature in a, it's a very primitive way, but you're just 
with various hooks, you're adjusting the height up and down from the, the bottom of the kettle to the, to the seat of the fire and swinging it out on the crane. It's, it's, it's very, very crude, but that's what you have to learn is, is those little adjustments. Uh, and that's the fun of it. All of that hearth cooking, not to mention colonial home heating, must have consumed a lot of firewood. People throw around figures of, of what it would be like to heat a house and, and cook in this house to more than 200 years ago. And it's, I've heard something like, um, I don't know, 14 quarter wood, something like that. It's, it's, wow. yeah, yeah. But when, you're, when your fires are going pretty much around the clock, um, in some fashion, um, you're going through a lot of wood. You really are. I've read accounts of like the, um, the Webb House in Wethersfield, um, and those were wealthy folks. Some of their domestic help wrote about uh, on a really cold winter day that, they could stand in front of the fire and, and keep at least part of their body warm, but a bucket of water a foot off the hearth in the morning was frozen. As if a colonial feast wasn't enough of a treat, guests at Tom's and Sally's dinners get to experience that meal in one of the most authentic colonial tavern settings you could imagine. At a break in the food prep, I asked Tom to sit down and tell us about his remarkable tavern room. So now there's a break in the cooking. It's uh, this is Thursday afternoon, and you are starting to set the stage for this dinner yes. in your magnificent tavern room dining room. So okay. <laughs> I want you to to kind of set the stage for the people listening to this podcast, so that they can get a sense of what this room is like and how okay. you're going to serve this dinner here. Th- this room is the original kitchen of a 1780 house. Um, so the big fireplace is would have been the main source of cooking in this house when it was built. Um, some years after, I, I think about 1815, the kitchen we're cooking in currently was added. Uh, and, th- and this room became uh, a secondary room in a little bit of Portland history. As I'm told, the, in the 1820s, the local Freemasons met in this room. Taverns in the 18th century were, they could be anything. They could be very simple. They could be more more elaborate, depending on you know their location, um, an urban setting, a country setting. This is a kind of a middle-class place. It's it's not a, a crude country tavern. This is a lifetime of, of collection, and it's always had a bit of a goal of being able to to have a tavern. And so what I, are the what are the things in this room? that someone going to an 18th century tavern would have seen and used? A large table, a cooking facility, some small tables. You would have seen a place to hang coats up, some things like this, um, gaming boards for entertainment. Um, Those were common, like a wall hanging shelf, which is uh, for for innkeeper supplies. Over here is is just all of the necessaries, uh, silverware, mugs, accessories for for cooking spigots for the barrels there is a small container for um, case bottles those are for for transporting liquor and in this case we we buy modern wine and um, and decant it for the presentation in, in 18th century style bottles now uh, is is everything that I see on this table the the pewter tankards the bottles the uh, the uh, plates is everything 18th century most of it is uh there, there are some well, most of my pewter is um is 18th century and in, and in fact for anybody that that has any interest in in 18th century american pewter uh, my goal has always been to to have a complete set 
um, a dozen of nine inch plates for um, for tavern meals just like this. And I have com actually completed it just recently because it's kind of a slow process. But along the way, although most of them are English, I have been able to get a couple of uh, Danforth plates, which the Danforth family was one of the the founding families of, of the pewter industry in um, in New England, in particular Connecticut. And they they trained family members and um, and outsiders as well. And they branched out all over the place. The I have a couple of it would be second or third generation Danforths, which actually were in Philadelphia by then. But it just adds to it for me. Um, they are real and they're in good shape. And um, yeah, in the 18th century and even before in the 17th century, innkeeping is is something that was very frequently done by females, largely because they could do it while their husbands were working elsewhere. They, they were necessary. They needed taverns and it's something women women could do. But everybody had to be, even in the 17th century, they had to be licensed. And in, in doing so, they were regulated. And this particular set of what look like mugs they're actually measures and just like you know, the, the state coming to inspect your your gasoline pumping stations today an innkeeper had to ha provide measures that were the proper quantities so the bottom line is you weren't cheating anybody in the quantities you were selling them so what what i'm looking at and what you're talking about is a series of they look like bugs and they they, they are graduated in size from very small to quite large. From a, a, a quart being the largest and then down to, um, it's it's pronounced, uh, it's spelled Jill, G-I-L, uh, it's pronounced Jill. And this is a, a quarter Jill. You had to have those and they had to be of the right dimension that you were you were legal. And how much how much is a Jill? Looks like it might be a quarter cup or less. Something like that, yeah. yeah. There are there are even finer uh, breakdowns, but that's that's probably the, the more standard breakdown right there. So now will you use the, this table that I'm looking at? It's yes. crowded with cups and pewter plates and bowls and pitchers and mugs. How much of this will you use as part of the dinner? Uh, almost all of it. Uh, the bowls are part of the preparation on the hearth. Um, they've already been used and put back and will be used again. The mugs, uh, the pewter mugs, are will be filled with ale if people so desire. The coffee cups are for after. Um, the coffee pot, um, we will serve the coffee in. The plates in the bowl, the bowls are for the soup. Um, Spoon. This is this box is full of uh, utensils, and those will all be um, on the table. So, yeah, a good portion of it will be used. This little shelf here was was a a gift from a friend of mine her, in her from her father's shop, which uh, turned out to be probably a very early nineteenth century little dovetail shelf. And um, this is exactly what an innkeeper would need. It's got little drawers for corks for bottles. Um, it's got extra spigots for the kegs. It's got some candles. It's got um, the butt ends of candles when they burn down. Um, you save the little stubs, which can be used for lanterns. Um, I, I always have one or two um, in my truck because I'm a, a restoration carpenter and um, having a beeswax candle to um, lubricate a screw, um, always a good thing. We don't have any modern lighting in here. Um, the, uh, the chandelier is, is strictly candle. Those, those are pure beeswax candles. Um, sometimes they make them, but sometimes they order them and a six inch candle like that will get us through the meal. It'll be fine. And there are two sconces on the walls and that's plenty of light. Um, now why beeswax candles? Because they burn cleaner and longer and truer. Most candles in, in a, an average household in the 18th century were, um, they're a mix, um, tallow, 
you know, beef tallow. You could mix beeswax in, but beeswax is obviously a lot harder to obtain and more expensive. But, you know, two and a half centuries ago, yes, people were around at night, but the working class people, it, they were very much a daylight society. They just were. There's no getting around that. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't want to, like my carpenter shop, your benches are near the windows. Um, you, you, you need daylight um, because no. to light it to the degree that you could perform, you know, carpentry tasks or, or any other trade for that matter, um, candles were expensive. The alternative to that, I have several of them, are what we call rush lights, um, which a, uh, a, swamp, a certain species of swamp reed is collected in the fall and they're dried out. Um, you strip the bark off them and it winds, it looks like a pipe cleaner. And then they are, with a, in a certain device, they are called a grisset. They are dragged through a mixture of, of rendered fat. Um, and also sometimes you could put beeswax in them. And you make a rush light. And, and these metal devices are to hold that light. It's, it isn't much of a light. It's a pretty feeble light and it smokes, but it is better than nothing. Um, and that's a very ancient poor man's kind of thing to do. A tavern is a place where the public is coming through. Um, and there would be newspapers available and they would... There'd be some probably prints on the walls. Um, this particular tavern being very close to the Connecticut River and this town having such a maritime history, in particular shipbuilding, I've got a ship model up there. Um, my prints are, are all maritime related. I've got a sea captain above the desk. One of the things taverns would often have is pictures of heroes, people, people in history. And over here we have um, James Wolfe. He was one of the British... Uh, leaders of the British army that we kind of looked up to. Although, as I understand it, he looked down on us. And below him is Israel Putnam. And below him is General Washington. And below him is Nathaniel Green. And then the guy on the bottom is my all-time favorite. That's John Barry, who was one of America's most successful um, frigate captains during the revolution. When the war was over, um, he went immediately into the China trade. Um, and he was very successful. He said, in ridiculous speed records. He was just a hell of a mariner, also a hell of a fighter. He built quite a, um, a fancy residence outside of Philly, but he died quite young. He was pretty badly wounded during the war, and he suffered from that, but um, he's one of my favorites. He's an Irish-born, quite a character. There's a statue of him, and if you go to the historic part of downtown Philly, Commodore Barry is, is standing there behind Carpenter Hall. So those are, those are my guys that are hanging up there, just guys I like some. Do you spend time in this room? Is this I do. I do. I um, come in here at night, especially, and light the candles, and I just sit here. I'll read a book. Um, that that single candle right there in my chair is enough. I will sit there and read and um, and just soak up the atmosphere. I, I just truly love it. And do you ever feel like you're back in the 18th century? Can yes. You- I, I, I like to think I can. Um, it's it's part of what I – just my character. I was born. I, I just love it. I love the time period. I I have since I was the seven or eight years old. It's kind of why I do what I do for a living, but I can't roam around the house or anywhere around outside for that matter and constantly be thinking about what was it like two and a half centuries ago on this piece of property. And this is authentically an 18th century house. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this guy, this house was built by a man named John Hubbard around 1780. He was a mill owner. And as far as I know, directly across the street, it's a bunch of ruins, the foundations, but I believe that was one of the mills he was involved in. And then up the hill is another Hubbard house, which was his the house of his grandson that was built um, before the Civil War. So this has been Hubbard territory for a while. Right up in back of us in the house is the what we know today as the airline trail, which has recently been turned into hiking trails. Across the street is a is an impenetrable jungle that was also wide open right down um, to, to the view of the rivers. 
one of the most striking set of objects in a tavern that's filled with interesting historic pieces is a set of carved woodblock cookie molds. One of the things I like to do, which be part of the dessert served here, is the old world, in, in particular, Dutch tradition of um, molded gingerbread. And these are a whole bunch of, of molds um, that will allow me to do gingerbread on shortbread. And there are a few Pennsylvania German original examples in now, there. Th- these molds are like a woodcut, right? They're They're, they are hand-carved um, into a hardwood, um, generally cherry in great detail and you press the dough into them and then struggle to get it out and you bake them so they it's an ancient tradition it goes back centuries in europe it's a great christmas tradition in holland um some of the christmas markets in in germany uh still use the ancient molds. some of them are are four or five hundred years old and they still use them the man who carves these loved that tradition and he traveled to europe and he picked out some designs that that suited him and he started a business, and he's been doing it ever since. When we're talking about cookie molds, we certainly aren't talking about those little things that you press and cut chocolate chip. No, these are, for example, the the St. Nicholas mold, uh, which is my favorite, is 12 inches tall. It's quite detailed, and, and the challenge is to, to get the dough out of the... Uh, out of the mold and then you know you put the mold aside and bake the cookie but the part i love about it is in particular saint nicholas is some of the dutch masters paintings there's a really famous one from the 17 early 17th century of a family around a giant fireplace in holland at christmas time and a man is holding a little girl in his arms and in her hand is a 12 inch saint nicholas cookie it's a long tradition and it's just fun Um, so what molds did you use for this saturday's dinner i used William and Mary, um, the 17th century um, man and woman, the man has a, a dog at his side and the woman has a parrot on her shoulder, except as sometimes happens, when we were baking William and Mary together, Mary slid off the baking pan and did not survive. Uh-oh. So it was William um, that we have, and I cooked and baked another one, which is one of my favorites. It's um, the very famous image of St. George slaying the dragon. I love that one. In a full week of meal preparation, Saturday is the busiest day of all. I stopped back Saturday afternoon and caught Tom in a break in the action. He was feeling pretty good about the upcoming meal. So, Tom, it's Saturday afternoon, and the project that you began with a shopping trip on Monday is now coming to fruition, and boy, does it smell good. The pork roast in the steel oven before the hearth, the chicken soup is simmering, you're sitting in the rocking chair. How do you feel? <laughs> um, relieved and successful. It's always a bit of a challenge to get it to, to come together and uh, be able to, to put it on the table in a, in a reasonable fashion, and I, I think we should be able to do that. So tell us about today. You've had Today is the busiest of the cooking days. Today isn't it? Is, is the grand finale. You get up early and start a fire. I shut the oysters, get them breaded and standing by we get the oil ready we get the the meat has been out for most of the day and it, you get it spitted get it in the tin up tin kitchen ready to go we made the sweet potatoes which are baking right now um, and everything else is ready uh, right at the moment it's about a little less than two hours before um, our guests come uh, the soup is ready it's it's just sort of simmering we also part of this morning we made the noodles um, those went in at, at the last minute. I asked Tom about preparing one of his colonial feast favorites, the fried oysters. 
Now, are fried oysters common 18th century fare? Oysters were done in just about every imaginable way uh, in the 18th century in Connecticut, all up the East Coast. And you look at old cookbooks, and they everything from fried to stewed to raw, they, they, were, they were so common. And are these oysters from Connecticut? These are Connecticut Blue Points. Um, Blue Points are the best ones that I found because one of the problems with oysters is they, uh, they shrink a lot. It's, I think that's one of the reasons you don't see them as commonly as fried clams in restaurants. Um, but in reality, if they're done right, they're sweeter. They, they're, they're wonderful. So we go with the biggest one I can get, and a Blue Point's a pretty good oyster. I, in this case, I got three dozen. And, you know, they're, they're a bit of work to, to shuck. You have to get in there with an oyster knife and, and cut the muscle and pry them open. But yeah, I've been told that that, maybe not on the scale of shad, but that shucking oysters really is an art form. Well, maybe to someone that could do it really, um, you know, swiftly, but I, I'm an amateur. I, I get my three dozen and I put them down there and it, it takes me what, it is what it is. I, um, you know, I'm not doing it for production, but yeah, it, it helps to have an oyster knife. The proper tool helps. Now, what's an oyster knife? It's, it's a little, about a five-inch blade and maybe three-quarter of an inch wide, flat on one side, um, half round on the other with a, a sharp but rounded point. And you just you penetrate the muscle in the in the base, and the round side seems to seems to float through better. So your the flat side is kind of doing the, the cutting. It doesn't matter if you turn it upside down; you're doing the same thing. You're peeling that oyster; it, it's stuck to the shell, and you're separating it. So you shuck the oysters, and then what happens? Then there, I have bowl, three bowls set up: uh, a bowl of flour, a bowl of six eggs, um, kind of beaten up, and a bowl of cornmeal. And you you shuck the oyster and dip it in the in the flour, the egg, and the cornmeal. Cover it thoroughly. When we're ready, we have a, an iron pot full of vegetable oil and it's it's preheated. You drop a little cornmeal in the oil and when it sizzles, you know you're just the right temperature. Throw them in there four or five at a time and it only takes less than a minute. They're, they're golden brown. You can easily overdo them and they get kind of tough. The trick is to have them just right. And those I put them on a plate them on a, an oval 18th century pewter platter, and um, people can indulge if they so desire. One of the more interesting cooking tools Tom used in his meal preparation was the device in which he cooked one of the most deliciously aromatic pork loins I've ever sniffed. You're looking at the pork loin. Yep. That is in this. It's called this. Uh, what a tin it oven. Has, it has two names. That, that I've encountered is one is a reflector oven, and the other um, name that they're interchangeable is a tin kitchen. A tin kitchen, and and what it is is a semi-circular. It's like a barrel that's cut in half yeah. almost. Yeah, with, one side is open and the back side is curved. The back side has a door in it. And you're right now sticking a ladle through the door and putting a kind of marinade onto the pork loin yes. that you previously placed on a spit yes. inside the um, inside the oven. Yes. It's and it's and it is it's about ten inches away from the fire, and the fire has it's a fireplace. This room. Uh, if anyone was in this kitchen with us right now, they would be quite warm because that fire's been going since early morning. We, we generally hope when we do this for a nice cool day because it can get pretty uncomfortable if um, if it's warm out. And we, 
We've had both. We've had really cold, snowy days, and we've had some days when it was far too warm. But um, yeah, it eats up the kitchen. It really does. It just strikes me that temperature regulation has got to be much harder. Yes. In this, then you know, when I when I cook on the stove, I just set the temperature, and that's what we get. That that is the key to cooking with iron. Regulating the heat. The fire itself comes and goes, and the iron absorbs heat in different ways depending on what you're doing. But it's it's just there's no other way to do it but to practice and fail a lot. As mealtime drew near, I wondered how the foods Tom was cooking the old-fashioned way would taste to the convection oven generation. Now, will this meal to 21st century palates, will this meal taste differently than a meal they might cook yeah, on their so. own oven? I, I think so. That Cooking in iron, it's not that the iron imparts a taste, but it's, it's a slower process. And, and it, I, I think being around the smoke, uh, it, it just seems to have a, a certain flavor to it. And coupled with the fact that uh, the recipes we're cooking are, are not everyday things that we that we typically um, serve. So um, that together, it's it's uh, there isn't a single thing here that um, um, tastes bad. It, it's just a wonderful, delightful kind of experience. What's your favorite? I like the breads. I like the oysters and the meat. There but then go. again, I like the soup. And I like the peas and bacon, and um, I guess that's about everything. Yeah. Well, you you know you better like everything because <laughs> you spent all week of your life making yeah. this meal. Yeah. And as I prepared to leave Tom to take off his chef's hat and don his tavern host attire, I asked him to describe item by item the meal that his week of preparation had created to delight his soon arriving dinner guest. This isn't going to be a typical 18th century meal. This is going to be a feast, right? Yeah, this. I, I like to think of it as a portrayal of a... It would be a fairly upscale kind of tavern. And you read about what tavern fare was, and it's all over the place, depending on the location of the tavern, the owner's preferences, the clientele, whether it's urban or suburban. What we portray in there is... I would, I would perceive it as a a fairly upscale kind of meal. Tell people what the menu is going to be start to finish. And and importantly, every single thing that is served tonight will be an item that you have made this week yes. and cooked right there on that hearth yes. using 18th century methods. Yes. From if you would, finish, the menu. We, yeah. I, we prepare it backwards. We start with dessert and end with the, with the meat. So it's prepared backwards, but it's served fried oysters, from there you go to the chicken soup, and from there we would sit down and plate the meat, stuffed roast. Along with that would be French rolls, Mrs. Gray's French rolls, molasses bread, or the anodana, the, the brown bread, peas and bacon. The other thing is a, um, I think it's a probably a German recipe, candied sweet potatoes, which are, are um, long strips of sweet potatoes, and it's mixed up with uh, brown sugar and some butter, uh, I chopped up lemon, a chopped up orange, and it's all mixed up and it's baked together. Um, we have a couple different kinds of wine. We have uh, some beer in the keg. I've tried one time um, rainwater Madeira because of its historical significance. The, 
the Madeira that was so popular around here, rainwater was the, an accidental thing. The kegs that were stored on top of the ship were exposed to, uh, to seawater and sunlight. Uh, they leaked a bit. Unintentionally, originally, that wine was altered a bit. It was mellowed. And it became much more desirable. So rainwater Madeira was very sought after. And uh, you can still get it at a specialty wine place. And I got a bottle. Nobody liked it. It was about $90. And nobody, nobody wanted it. So it didn't taste good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that, uh, once in a while, if I can, I'll try something like that. Because I know it was, it was part of history. So after the meat, the potatoes, then we'll settle down. And people can have coffee. They can have more wine or beer. We have for dessert a sour cream pound cake. And those are done in a an old copper baking dish with a pattern on it. And then we have both from carved wooden wooden moles, uh, Scottish shortbread and uh, Dutch gingerbread. The last thing mixed with those, we also serve ice cream and I do not make it myself, but as part of the presentation, it, it is, is served in a heavy copper vessel. Um, it's called a, I think it's a sarbertier. And this is something that when ice cream was made in the 18th century in, in Philadelphia or Virginia, or it would have to be a pretty pretty upper-class kind of setting. Um, they would have a, a large bowl with, with ice and rock salt, and the ice allows the temperature to come down. This cop, this heavy pewter vessel would be set in the middle of that bowl, and you're, it's round, so you're turning it with your hands and you're mixing it. Your ingredients are put into it, and that's where the ice cream is, is developed. I think the principle would be that the heavy pewter um, helps conduct a cold. They come in different sizes. The, the food waste people in Williamsburg have done a demonstration, and curiously, I had, I had purchased this vessel um, because I liked it, and then I finally found out what it was, and I saw that these, these guys doing it. Theirs was bigger, theirs was two quart, mine was, mine was one quart. The people I bought it from had no idea what it was. It was just in an antique store in West Virginia, and it's, it's wonderful. I, I, take the ice cream out and stuff it in there and put it in the freezer, and we serve it that way. Um, the demonstration that I saw those folks doing, they take it from that vessel and they pack it into um, a beautifully ornate pewter ice cream mold. And I, I, ha I acquired one of those. I haven't quite mastered it yet. I, I will someday learn learn the tricks of that. To see one presented is beautiful. It, it couldn't last very long, but it's, a, it's an ice cream sculpture. Someday we'll be able to pull that off. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Tom Linsky and Sally Irons and the Watkinson School for whom the benefit dinner was prepared. For more delicious podcasts, including episode 61 with food historians Keith Stately and Kathleen Fitzgerald, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.org. And for more great Connecticut history stories, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was produced and edited by Walt Woodward, and I hope you'll join us soon for another great Connecticut history story on grading the nutmeg. And oh yeah, the leftovers were just plain delicious. <laughs>